The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, here we go, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and we've all heard phrases like history is a lie agreed upon, and history is written by the victors. But how often do we dig deeper to discover just what these lies are and who's telling them? We see huge megalithic structures and ruins that would be hard to build today, constructed with a precision that seems lost to time. We know of many out-of-place artifacts that suggest complex technology and eras we're told it couldn't exist in. And it's just a little suspicious just how much of the official record is written by a handful of approved primary sources, Vatican chroniclers, and graduates of the Royal Society. Just considering the degree we've seen narratives shaped and events manipulated in our lifetimes, can we really trust anything coming from the top down in any era? Add in cataclysms, calendar manipulations, lost empires, suppressed technologies, extinguished indigenous cultures, book burnings, lost libraries, the Inquisition, and the big colonial steamroll, and who really knows how far off this tangled web of lies is from the actual truth? Well, today's guest Alex, also known as Trismegistus, might have some idea as he's a key moderator, contributor, and researcher with StolenHistory.net, one of the best websites I've found for exploring alternative history and trying to piece back a more honest assessment of where we've been. The team at StolenHistory.net is also responsible for an amazing three-part Stolen History documentary series you can find on their YouTube channel, and I'm really looking forward to getting into this one. The timeline truth seeker, official narrative naysayer, and serious sleuth of stolen history, Alex, my man, welcome to the higher side. I just have to take a moment of silence to <laughs> let that all set in after being on this show and hearing an intro to myself since I've been listening to you in 2015. So thank you for having me. I'm very grateful to be here. 
Of course, man. Too kind. And this is really going to be awesome. I loved the documentary and the random things I have found searching through the site. Amazing stuff. For people who aren't as familiar, give us a little overview of what the site is about, what the team is seeking to accomplish, and how you got involved. All that good stuff. Yes. So this all started for me back in about 2017. I came across it was a Reddit post, I think. And somebody posted a link to one of the original World's Fair threads on the original Stolen History. So there's actually a little bit of Stolen History about Stolen History that I can get into <laughs> to begin with, because it's kind of an interesting story. Matter of fact, we've spoken before a year or two ago I think I showed up on one of the Zoom chats and we talked about trying to get Corbin Dallas from the original website. (laughs) So there's an interesting story behind that too. Synchronicity. Yes. So the stolenhistory.org was actually the original iteration of this sort of alternative history forum. And it was started by a mysterious administrator, sole moderator named Corbin Dallas. And Corbin Dallas was also an extremely prolific poster of research and had tons and tons of this content, interesting content related to alternative history, synthesizing a lot of previous research along with their own research. And, you know, I was fascinated by it. I I wanted to dig into it a lot more. So, you know, I I lurked around and and I read about Tartaria and I read about mud floods and I read about the world's fairs. And it was certainly interesting and provocative and virtually unheard of at that point, you know, compared to now, especially. So, you know, I dug into that for quite some time. That site lasted until about 2020. I think, matter of fact, it was August of 2020. Because it was a little while into the whole lockdowns and COVID. And one day out of the blue, the site got taken down. Or the site was taken down. Willingly. It wasn't like shut down. The administrator, this Corbin Dallas, took the site down himself, redirected it to an archive page. Site's done. Just not accessible anymore. So a few of us through back channels, you know, people that had been contributing to the site and had kind of gotten to know each other. We had, a, I think, a Discord server at the time. We kind of scrambled and kind of got this fire team together of people who could, you know, crawl through archives and see what we had and reach out to people who had their own backups of the site. And within a few weeks, we had uploaded a not complete, but partial website of all this information because you got to think you know this is hundreds and hundreds of hours of research and replies and threads and photos and videos and all this stuff that was just gone and you know a lot of us were very attached to it and you know it formed a community around a lot of this research and a lot of this conversation so we took it upon ourselves to create stolenhistory.net which has no association with the original Corbin Dallas and the staff member, this one and only staff member of that website. 
a few months after we opened the website up, that account reached out to us and offered to let us access the full archive. So we were actually able to almost fully restore all the archive threads and replies and all those things. And then, of course, branch off from that and create our own. So stolenhistory.net is kind of a weird stolen history version of another history forum that we've managed to preserve mostly. And, you know, farther than that, we don't know who this Corbin Dallas is. Nobody that was on the website ever, you know, met the person in real life. They publicly claimed that they were a police officer in Seattle. We don't know that for sure. Hmm. But the point is, is that they produced a lot of this. He produced a lot of this original research that kind of got everything set off. And that's how I originally became attracted to it was through these World's Fairs threads trying to discover exactly what was going on. Mm. And still to this day, you know, <laughs> the more I look into it, the more questions I have. And <laughs> the whole meta conversation around a lot of these topics has also gotten away from us. There's a lot of misleading content and content without very much research to it that has kind of become popular. And it is unfortunate. Whether you believe the earth is flat or round, we definitely won't get into that conversation <laughs> here. But I think we can all admit that regardless of how you believe that the earth shape, there are people out there that are trying to distort and make these arguments seem as ridiculous as possible in order to discredit actual research that's going on. Right. And that is certainly an issue that we face now with this type of research that we didn't have back in 2017, 2018, when all this stuff was new and still kind of getting you know, hashed out. It's interesting because a lot of these conversations have already been had years ago about what is real about the world's fairs? What can we verify? Were these all previously constructed structures or is there a mix? So you know, I, I find it part of my responsibility to not only you know, do further research and try to push the ball forward, but also to remind people that th this all has to be taken with a healthy dose of skepticism and personal verification and research. Yes. And a lot of what we find is anecdotal, talking to people, speaking. The stuff that we're talking about and the stuff that we're researching is not that far removed. You may have a relative who knew someone who was around when these things were happening. I had a great, great aunt who apparently attended one of these world's fairs. You know, we have a photo of her in the city around that time frame. You know, I can personally verify some of these things. And a lot of what we're dealing with is stories like that of, I have an uncle who works in construction and this is what they experienced. And it's really part of the fascination of having the forum and, and having it be open to everyone to make an account. You know, it's totally free to make an account on StolenHersey.net. We're value for value. Right. We don't charge anyone anything. You can make an account. It costs nothing. And you have access to everything. You have access to our threads, you can comment, you can create your own threads, you can upload resources to our library, 
We have you know, a completely open and accessible library. And we're in the slow process of trying to figure out what a wiki would look like for a lot of this information. So we want to make all this available and as open as possible because this research is relatively new and it requires a lot of boots on the ground. Yes. And a lot of people contributing to this because this story isn't over. <laughs> no, it is not. And this conclusion, these conclusions haven't been reached yet. That's the crazy thing is this kind of research almost didn't exist until about 2016, 2017, at least here in the Western world. Right. And that's a pretty good summary. Let's get into some of that actual research so people have a little more context about what we're talking about, because the website is great. It is a forum with so many posts and layers about things in the history that people seem to know about that just don't add up with what we're told is the official narrative. So obviously, this is all ongoing research, and it might be hard to do this, but can we give people a broad sense of the timeline that's being suggested here? Because in the intro to the first part of the series, the question is asked, what if we had a technologically advanced unified civilization less than 500 years ago? And that can sound pretty shocking compared to this conventional timeline of Stone Age, Bronze Age, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans. What would you say are the broad strokes of what might be a more accurate history? Because what you guys suggest is quite different. I think you have to start with the physical evidence, which is the aspect of it I find the most compelling. Because history can be written, books can be created, but the structures that are left is the truest evidence we're going to find of what we're looking at here. And it is quite difficult to do sometimes without actually having photographs to show the audience. But of course, you can Google any one of these cities that I'm referring to, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The style that we're discussing by the mainstream is typically called Greco-Roman, Revival, Baroque, Renaissance, whatever you, you know, however you want to call it, large cathedrals large structures built in the time frame they say is call it the 1500s but more realistically from the mid 19th century all the way up until maybe 1910 1920 this quote unquote revival of architecture these stone and marble structures with this architectural style that is global. Now, this isn't something where it's exclusively a Western concept. This is something that you see all over the world. You see it in Japan, you see it in South America, you see it in Australia, New Zealand, many Asian countries, China, Japan, Russia. You'd be hard pressed to find the style and engineering quality. It isn't out there. I mean, maybe Antarctica, but I mean, there's a lot of ice between there and the bottom of the land there so we'll see <laughs> but you take a look at this architecture these massive domes these ornate structures and you wonder about who built them and you know of course these structures are designed so beautifully in a way that you could spend your entire life dissecting the sacred geometry going on in a lot of these structures and not just churches homes businesses 
you know, industrial structures, plants, factories. It didn't end. All these structures were like this. And then you have to think about logistics because you read the Wikipedia articles about them and they typically go like this. Well, the original structure was built in 1845. They grew too large, so they tore the whole thing down in 1875. Then they built a new version of it that was much bigger, and it burned down in 1896. They rebuilt it in 1897, and it stayed until about 1920, and then they tore it down and rebuilt it again. And now we have the structure we have. And you go through these Wikipedia articles on all these structures, and you can do it in your own hometown. And no hometown is too small. I see structures like this in towns of less than 10,000 people quite frequently. So your own hometown probably is involved in that too. So do some digging, find out what the story is and how it matches up to mine, because I've done this enough times to know this is the story that they give us. Then you go and you try to say, all right, sure. They had all these different versions of construction. Well, surely you can go through the photographic history and find you know, the evidence of, these, of it being constructed. Certainly if it was built in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, we'd have construction photos of it. So you go online, you try to look around, you try to, you know, you find some, maybe a few construction photos with some scaffolding here and there. And it's 90% done, except for the dome. And you see this over and over and over again until you wonder, well, where are the rest of the construction photos? And you keep digging and you keep digging. You, you try to find records of these structures when they were actually built. And evidence that these buildings were truly built in the time that they say they were. Not just in the decade, but also in the amount of time that they took. For example, the city of Seattle, after their fire in 1889, you can go look this up on Wikipedia. In a 18-month period, in 1889, Seattle built 5,625 buildings. <laughs> Seems like a lot. And they're not just like wooden shacks, log cabins, you know, a couple of shanty towns. You know, we're talking massive hotels. We're talking five, six-story buildings. We're talking stone and granite, marble, foundations everything, you know, beautiful windows, imported pillars from Italy. They're crazy. And at the rate that they were building them, you then have to wonder, well, okay, how many people were living in this town? You go and you look at the populations of these cities, and it doesn't really seem to support these structures having been built in, say, a year, two years, or even in the case of some cathedrals, 75 years. And you keep expanding out because there's a lot of research that can be done on these structures. You can find out, you know, where were the local quarries that they were pulling these stones from? Well, you find that there was one quarry in this town. And then you look at all of the buildings that were said to have been built in this particular period of time using these particular quarries. And what you find is that Unless there were tens of thousands of people working 24-7 in these quarries, there's absolutely no way that the resources of these areas that are, in a lot of cases, take America, for example, you know, the American West, if they're lucky, they're waiting days or weeks for trains to show up with supplies. And the rate that these structures were going up, 
the logistics don't really match it. Right. It's starting to sound like people kind of just walked into a city that was already there, but not populated. That seems to be the case in many circumstances, I believe. And I think what we're looking at nowadays is a lot of the sort of more ornate work, the exteriors of the structures that still stand today, if they said they were built, you know, before the 20th century, were remodels. Many of them already stood, their foundations already stood. And you find this occasionally in small towns where they haven't really popularized their history. You'll find it on their buildings where they'll say, we don't know how old the structure is, but some Freemasons 150 years ago showed up and put some fun little turrets on it and some gargoyles and a new coat of paint. And Wikipedia says that they're the ones who designed the structure. And that's all there is to it. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> and I say that's not the end of the story. The mainstream explanations as to how these huge cities got here, if you look at the technology that they had, and in many cases, you'd be surprised to find that a lot of the technology in the relatively recent past was quite good and more impressive than you'd imagine, um, especially for the early 1800s. But again, the question remains, where did all this stuff come from? Where did we have, or excuse me, why did we have this massive explosion of industry, technology, resources to be able to create you know, the bones of the structures we stand in today? I just don't think it adds up. Right. I'm with you. And it seems like the main thing people on the site focus on or agree on is that there seems to have been some kind of cataclysm or series of cataclysms where it's suggested that in the chaos, a power vacuum was created and a parasitic elite seized the opportunity and colonization, the inquisition and imperialism all spawned out of this cabal methodically sectioning out the world and sending people to different parts and steamrolling everything. And we know that a lot of the European royal families were connected as one big family. That's even just conventional history. World War I is often referred to as essentially a family squabble. We know the King of Great Britain and the Russian Tsar were cousins at a time. It wouldn't be that hard to believe that there was some sort of coordination for this extended family to seize leadership roles from across most of Europe and Russia, where, you know, you would expect native families of a local race or heritage to be in charge, to be the, the king and queen of a certain area. So it's odd because where did this one network of people emerge from to get control of all these different places? I guess what more can be said about this cataclysm that's suggested and the cabal that sprung out of it? The thing I go back to is take a look at the amount of wars we've had in history and why the wars are so heavily focused on. When you're in history class, I mean, most people look back on their history lessons in school. It's pretty much going from war to war. 
And what you're learning is names of generals, names of battles, you know, how many people died, what kind of treaties were passed. And you don't really focus on much else. And I think that's a really clever way of getting people to completely miss the point of history, which is how these conflicts got started and why these conflicts got started. I personally consider, and we're going with American history just for the sake of it, that's what I've spent the most time looking into. If you look into American history, you have a period of time pretty much consistently between the early 1800s, call it 1811, through 1945, where you have this extraordinary mass culling of people between the War of 1812, the Civil War, leading up into World War One and Two, This is a massive die-off of able-bodied men that were thrown into what are effectively meat grinders. And we don't really know a whole lot about what was taken in the fog of that war and who would want to see this put through. So imagine you had a native population of Americans that were sufficiently advanced in many ways, you know, at least up till those types of standards, not, you know, spaceships or anything like that, but, you know, reasonable quality of life. They had machines and a way to power themselves and some other technology that I think we don't quite understand anymore, but misinterpret as architectural flourish on structures Mm -hmm. and we can certainly get into that but you have these cities with these structures and you have the unfortunate task of having to explain why many of these structures have buried first floors not all of them but enough of them to where you may have to in the future address those issues and it may not be so easy to do the more people are around to talk about it. So if you were a member of one of these cabals, whether it's the oil oligarchs or the Vatican with their manufactured history in order to justify their reign, I think the most important thing for them to do is to control history and to try to make sure there are as few people left to talk about the conflicts that they made them go into as possible. And if they do manage to survive, they're so screwed up by what they saw, they'll never talk to anyone about it. Mm. Wow, man. I love this. And on the subject of mass culling events, Another thread I found really interesting was about insane asylums. The narrator of the documentary asks, why were these mental hospitals established in the early 1900s where the mentally ill and political dissidents, ding, 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 were imprisoned? And why do these asylums have the same architecture as the old world? And that was a mind blower for me. Firstly, why would these buildings be designed kind of like palaces? You know, you'd think they'd look more like a hospital or a prison. And we also know they definitely exiled people in these places 
maybe people who knew too much or wouldn't go along. And conveniently, most of these buildings have been demolished today. So dicey, dicey. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a personal connection to that. Hmm. I have two great uncles who spent three decades of their lives in one of those facilities when they were kids. Damn. And again, we're talking about family anecdotes here. There was apparently a man in that town who was molesting children, a wealthy man. And my great uncle apparently didn't keep his mouth shut and ended up in one of those. Damn. And spent 30 years there. Was never the same person. I mean, I met him. I did actually meet him in real life. He was alive when I was a kid. And he was, they both needed care their entire lives. Hmm. So sad, man. And oddly, I also had an uncle, one who died before I was born. But he was in the Navy and then somehow got entrapped by a police officer on a fishing trip or something and outed as gay. And I guess in certain places in the early 80s, that was enough to send you to one of these facilities. And he got electroshock therapy and I'm sure a ton of drugs and apparently was never the same either and ended up committing suicide once he did get out. But when you just do a little digging and ask the people in your family a generation or two older, these stories do come out. The evil empire has done a lot of damage and to suggest the reset might have only been like 500 years ago, well... We probably do have some echoes and whispers of information that could be very useful for this overall study. Obviously, it wouldn't be in the official history, but some of these stories do survive through family tales. Yes, I think they definitely do. And I think the asylums were a way of keeping their, they had their ear in, in these communities and they were hearing what these people were discussing and, you know, potentially pulling them out of society if they were catching on to things a little too quick because this was again keep in mind this period of time would have been when they were setting up shop you know the manifest destiny american history the expansion west you know all of the construction that was happening in the 1920s you know these people were potentially around to see some of this stuff if you happen to know that the local freemason in town was constructing a remodel of a 400-year-old building or, you know, whoever. They may not have cared any mind as to how old these structures were originally when they started building over them. You know, were you at risk? Would you end up in an asylum? I mean, you go through and you look at some of these reasons that people were committing to asylums, and it was, you know, masturbating too much. Or, you know, being a distempered woman. You know, it's just like any old thing. You could basically make the justification that these people needed to go in. And you have the leftovers after these wars who are still maybe going around and that remember these things and could potentially challenge them in the future. Right. There's also some interesting wordplay with asylum, like seeking asylum. They used a word that gets used in other contexts for that. And also, if this sounds far-fetched, give me an example of someone who was treated or cured and came out better, because I've never heard of that in my life. They're more brain-scrambling facilities when it comes to 
the pharmaceuticals that are shoved down your throat, the electroshock therapy, the horrible conditions. I never heard anybody come out of there and be like, well, thank God for that asylum because they had the best medicine and they really fixed me. That's not the story we're told or we ever hear. No, I, I would compare them more to almost like internment camps and re-education centers and expanding out into the world's fairs, which were also happening around this time. That's part of the same program. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the good cop, bad cop of the re-education and the reset of the civilization is, you know, if you don't follow the program, you may end up in one of these asylums. But if you are with the program, you get to go enjoy these absolutely stunning events and see this beautiful technology and go and experience all the new things these people have to offer you. Yes, I'm so glad you... All funded by the oil oligarchs. Indeed, indeed. And I'm so glad you led us there because I'm looking at the clock and I know that the World's Fair is a huge part of this. I mean, World's Fairs, but part three is my favorite part of the documentary series, a two-hour exploration of the World's Fairs that we've all heard of. And I wanted to make sure we got this in the first hour. And... I like that you have this personal connection to the 1904 Buffalo Expedition because several of the other ones covered are areas that I'm very familiar with, San Diego, St. Louis, and Chicago. But talk to us about the series of World Fairs from 1850-ish to the early 1900s and what their suggested purpose and all this was in the alternative paradigm compared to just this big celebration of culture and technology? The World's Fair idea started in London in 1850. That is, if you've ever seen the Crystal Palace in London, that is what that structure was built for. A lot of the infrastructure is gone now, of course, as it is in most cities that have hosted World's Fairs. But they were essentially like the 19th century equivalent of Six Flags mixed with a tech expo, but it was all built to be temporary and was torn down. Every single one of these were temporary structures and temporary events. And you go and you look at photos of these ones, and we can use the Buffalo one as an example, just because it is one of the most impressive and the one I'm the most attached to from a personal level. You go and see that it took 18 months for them to construct the fairgrounds for the 1904 Buffalo Expo. But you look at these massive buildings, again, in the same style of architecture, this grand, sweeping, technically advanced, you know, statues everywhere. And they built canals. They built all kinds of infrastructure. And you look at it and you see, well, they built it all in 18 months with steel girders and some plaster, you know, made from horse hair because you know, it's a little stronger and a lot of wood a lot of wood, an ungodly amount of wood, so much wood that most forests in the United States are no more than about 150 to 200 years old. And when you look at the expos, 
and how much they would have required in order to build those, never mind all of the other permanent structures, you start to get an idea of this logistics problem that I'm talking about. And then when you cut down all these trees, what happens? Oh, the soil may cause flooding, which may cause a lot of issues with the structures. Anyway, the World's Fairs were the most attended events on the planet for a considerable period of time. Population counts up into the millions and millions of visits. So it took 18 months to build these massive fairgrounds. They were open from, you know, about eight months, eight, nine months, and then they tore it all down. Again, what are the logistics of building and tearing down Six Flags in every city, you know, major city in the country? It would be an extraordinary undertaking from a monetary and engineering standpoint. And that's not even getting into the good stuff which is alongside all of those temporary structures, there's a curious amount of permanent structures they built right alongside it. So in the case of Buffalo, you can still go visit one of those buildings. Nowadays, I think it's the Natural History Museum. I took a field trip there when I was young. I grew up in that area. So you know, I took a field trip there as a kid. You know, it's a nice building, nice big marble pillars and all that fun stuff, but it is, it's, it's marble and stone and they apparently built that structure along with all the other temporary structures in that same 18 month window st louis is the same thing i believe there's still a gate or something i think there's a park in st louis that still has a lot of the a few things left i don't know if you're familiar with it or not yeah i am actually and same in san diego so in st louis it's forest park it's the biggest area of nature within the city of St. Louis. And in San Diego, it's Balboa Park, which is again, a giant park. Both of these parks are on the edge of the city zoo. And it's just strange because if anyone were to Google San Diego Balboa Park, you will see these structures that are insanely detailed. And I guess I had always heard or thought that these were buildings that the Spaniards built when they took over the area because there's so many mission buildings around. But I never knew they were apparently built for the World's Fair and meant to be temporary because they're certainly not temporary. And the documentary talks about a lot of public outcry in San Diego specifically that was like, no, this stuff is too nice. You're not tearing it down. And they're like, well, it was supposed to be temporary. And they're like, well, we don't care. You're not tearing it down. And surprise, surprise, it still stands today. So it is like the good cop, bad cop analogy that you mentioned, because you can use wars and fires to take out a lot of these structures, just destroy a city, or you can pretend to have a giant event and then deconstruct the city without the war part. And the documentary talks about the financing of these world fairs, as you mentioned, always robber baron funded. And they always came at a massive loss, millions of dollars, even in those days, hundreds of millions in some cases, the deconstruction often being the most costly part. And when the thing was built, they didn't want to tear it down, but they were contractually obligated. And the whole thing doesn't even make economic sense. So, you know, for these cutthroat robber barons who are titans of industry and masters of profiting off things, 
there seemed to be a different agenda here because they were totally cool with it all being taken down. And it's just the weirdest thing. Usually when people talk about the world's fairs, they talk about ether-based technologies, like these images of uh, people fighting, dueling with like light swords. Mm-hmm. And we hear about Tesla, which of course was the Buffalo one. Yep. And all these images of buildings that are lighting up. And so it seems like they served multiple purposes. Maybe they were showing people things they were about to put back in the box. Also, sorry, it's going on a bit of a, a rant here, but another aspect I thought was interesting is they're showing these new technologies with the inventors, with the new patent system. So if there was an old connected world of sharing ideas and maximizing abundance, this was the new world showing you, no, this was invented by this guy. He owns it. You can buy it from him. But all these things are based on limited resources now. And this is how we're doing things from here on out. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah, you you nailed it. The introduction of the patent system, the you know documentation of all these technologies, and then the weird alchemical inverted trick of utilizing the old world technology to build and power the fairs, while also simultaneously introducing the fossil fuel and consumption and limited resource technology at the same time. I think that's really what bothers me the most about all of it is, you know, you look at, for example, most people don't know because it's very difficult to find photos of it, but the Eiffel Tower originally had a massive spotlight on top of it. You know, this big old thing, almost like an eye of Sauron on top of it. and you can find some photos because the Eiffel Tower was built for a World's Fair, by the way. And that's not the only tower that's an Eiffel Tower type structure in Europe. There's actually at least dozens more. Not quite as large as the Eiffel Tower, but certainly as impressive and as strange from a artistic standpoint and gets more into a potential remnant of or an homage to an earlier ethereal technology. So you have mercury arc lamps and neon gas, xenon gas that they were putting in these light bulbs to power a lot of the technology that was at the fair. And sure, Tesla was there, and sure, Tesla had his inventions and his technology, but we all know what happened to Tesla. We don't necessarily need to rehash what happened to him and how they were able to control his ideas about technology. So you have these tricks being played on these people, while at the same time you're introducing them to all the new things that you're going to love about this society. Now, one of my favorite ones is there's one in Seattle, I believe. It was early 1909, maybe. And they have a baby incubator exhibit, like a little house that was set up. And there's all these weird little Premies. premature babies yeah. and these incubators. And they're showing them how, to, how these incubators are going to save these babies' lives. And it's just, it's a very weird scene. 
not really something that is idea, anyone's idea of a fun time, I guess. I don't know. I, if I'm a family in the 1900s and I'm trying to have fun with my kids and go around and see all the fun stuff, I, you know, I don't know about seeing babies in incubators. And then, of course, the question's raised, was there a repopulation involving children repopulating many of these you know, restructured cities in order to control the narratives and to ensure that they can teach these people how history really is. Yeah, that kind of touches on the orphan trains thing, which you know has yes. an official story, but it's come up in the context of alternative history a lot. Like, why would European families put thousands, I don't even know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids on trains and send them out or send them over to the new world alone? Like, what was going on that was so bad that you'd want to get rid of your kid it just doesn't add up in a lot of different ways but yeah, yeah you're right repopulating it seems like yeah it seems i think the official or like the wikipedia number you'll get on that is between like 1850 and 1930 it was like a quarter million children jesus which i think is even more so than that <laughs> i think most people will actually again i have i have a connection to something like this i have a great grandfather that all we knew about him was he was raised on a reservation. He wasn't Native American, but he was raised on a reservation. And I challenge people to go through their family, try to go through their family history as much as you can and ask yourself this question. If you had 250,000 children over the course of this period of time getting put on trains and shipped off to the Midwest, where they would get off the train, you know, let's say a six, eight, 10 year old kid, you get off this train and there's a farmer waiting on the other end of that train station and takes you along and you get this job on this farm or you're working in a factory in St. Louis or whatever. And you get adopted by these families potentially, or you find someone, they adopt you. How much of your bloodline is actually your bloodline? How much can you actually verify that the people that were in your family tree in that time wasn't somebody who was coming from one of these, you know, orphan children. And, and were they only ever coming from England? <laughs> Where else were they getting these children? Were they native children? Were they people that they pushed out? Were they the families of people they had cleared these cities out of and needed them to go work somewhere else? I mean, there's, it's overwhelming when you try to actually hold any kind of rational logic to the mainstream stories that were presented about this, you know, very, not that far long ago period of time and not even that long of a period of time. It's like less than a hundred years. You have all these things happening and it's so hard to make sense of it because it's the information that is given on a piece of paper or written in a book is so tenuous that all you really have left is the stories of people that you've met or spoken to and the places that you've been and the things that you've seen because I don't see history actually getting sorted out any other way. I don't think we're going to find a magic bullet book that's going to, you know, or scroll or papyrus or whatever, that's just going to solve it. I think that's nonsense that these museum directors invent in order to justify tourism. 
in Egypt is a sad but great example of that. In fact, recently, Turkey just announced that they found a underground city that could hold like it was they estimate 60 to 70,000 people lived in this quote unquote underground city in Turkey. And they say it was for Christians to escape religious persecution and of course coming from a museum director. And then what you find out is all these different historical fields were all invented in this period of time. Isn't it weird that Egyptology almost does not exist at all until Napoleon shows up in Egypt. <laughs> yes, man. Yes. Lots of questions. And we could just do this all day on the various threads that you guys have covered. I wanted to look a bit deeper at Chicago because it's mentioned that Chicago was called Chalaga on several older maps. And that fits with this idea that there was some old world region with structures remaining that was well known. And then we have this crazy Chicago fire of 1871 that destroyed thousands of buildings. They say that alone is kind of suspicious, but then the official story for the Chicago fire is that a cow knocked over a lantern. Sounds a lot like a guy ate a bat at a wet market. Yep. And then you bring in a world's fair in 1893. Say you built the last remaining structures and take them down when it's done. It's wild, man. Yeah, and I think Ronald Carlson's talked about it, but have you ever heard of the Peshtigo fire that happened the same day as the Chicago fire? I don't think so. So the same day of the Chicago fire in 1871, Peshtigo, Wisconsin's not that far away from Chicago either. I think it's on the other side of the lake, I believe. I could be wrong. Not that far away, though. Same day, maybe an hour or two away, car ride and you have this account from i think it was a preacher or reverend or somebody from the town we have you know, this journal allegedly describing his experience of this event and he's not just talking about a fire he's mentioning things like noxious fumes he's mentioning like giant black balloon hovering above the city it reads like war of the worlds he was making observations like people were dead on the ground and they weren't burnt, but their pocket watches were melted. And things that may suggest evidence of some sort of electromagnetic event versus some kind of actual just straight up fire. And so this happens the same day, not that far away from the city of Chicago and their fire. And you look at photos of the Chicago fire, and it doesn't look like a fire. As a matter of fact, it looks, Chicago after that fire looks more like the World Trade Centers after 9-11. They're not destroyed by fire. They're shaken apart. They've been disintegrated. Damn. It looks like complete and utter chaos. Now, yes, a lot of these structures have wooden roofs, and wooden roofs do burn quite well. But consider the stuff that did survive these fires, and consider the stuff that didn't, and you won't find much rhyme or reason to it. They say that it's mostly wooden structures that burn in these fires. But again, you look at photos of Chicago before the fire, and it doesn't look like they're 
wooden structures. That's just something that people say because they have to, because they can't explain it any other way. There's no way to look at those. And furthermore, Chicago's not the only one. If you just look up great fires, you'll probably find that almost every major city and minor city you've been in has had a giant fire in this period of time between the late 1800s and early 1900s. So like you said, there's a lot of ways you can go about resetting the historical timeline. You can do it the nice way and trick the people left into a completely new paradigm and make it seem like the next great thing, which, you know, to be fair, a lot of them were rewarded quite nicely after World War II for sticking around. A lot of people didn't have a whole lot of incentive after World War II to say and remember these things. But the other way is you can subjugate people, you can put them in asylums, you can create wars for them to go die in. And all we have left in a lot of these cases are photos. And what do the photos say? The photos don't say that this was a fire. The photos of Baltimore, the photos of Seattle, the photos of San Francisco after these fires and these earthquakes are not indicative of a natural cataclysm. There was something else going on here. And whether it was a relatively recent cataclysm or some sort of attack, it's hard to say. And whether it was world-consuming and happened all at once or happened in multiple instances in certain situations over a long period of time, it's hard to say. But we're not being told the whole story, and we need to get out into our own backyards, and we need to do the research for ourselves. I live in a town where I have a lot of access to historical information whether it's true or not, it's not important. But the important thing is, is that you're doing the work for yourself to try to see how much of history you can verify for yourself. Go find a building that they say was built in the 1870s and go try to find out who the architect is and go see if there's maps from that period of time that match up to the photos where they say it was and what it actually looked like. And then go try to, you know, try to verify as much of this as you can. and I promise you, you're going to hit the same roadblocks as me. Mm. But that's not the point. The point is, is that this is on us to figure out. Nobody is going to write the next great book on the real history of the world. I certainly don't want to do that. <laughs> and anyone who's telling you that they want to, you should probably stay away from. Because this shit's messy. <laughs> yes, and... It is crazy just how many fires there have been. I've seen lists that you guys have talked about on the website way more than I would have thought or realized. And then things like the Vatican Library moving three times. Of course, we know the Library of Alexandria was destroyed. But fires, I mean, they just seem to constantly, constantly happen. And before we run out of time, I just wanted to ask you, because I know you've seen a ton of stuff as a moderator and contributor to the StolenHistory.net forum. Are there any recent topics or side threads that have piqued your interest that are not covered in the films that we could throw in here as a just a 
a nice little bit of dessert. Yeah, I call this my anecdotal evidence of a reset. Or not anecdotal, but a supplemental piece of evidence to some sort of large-scale recent cataclysm in the United States in particular. I like it. And that's the passenger pigeon. That was going to sound weird, but go with me here. Okay. So until 1900, the passenger pigeon was the most populous bird in North America. And that doesn't seem like that interesting of a fact until I tell you that one of these flocks of passenger pigeons could be in the estimated range of 3 billion to 5 billion at a time. Huh. What the hell? Apparently, before 1900, one out of every four birds in North America was a passenger pigeon. And they've been described by Autobahn. And you could go and find information about this passenger pigeon and how insane these flocks of birds were. Autobahn was saying that he was trying to measure a flock one time, and he roughly measured it at a column of one mile in breadth, passing over him uninterrupted for three hours, leading him to conclude that it was about 180 square miles of pigeon, (laughs) which is approximately one billion in a flock. And these things would completely dominate the sky. But by 1900, they weren't just depopulated. There were museums that were paying hundreds of dollars in the early 1900s just to get a dead passenger pigeon. Whoa. By 1900, every single passenger pigeon on the planet was eliminated, extinct species, completely, in less than 50 years. Because Audubon was talking about them in the 1850s or 1830s. Like These flocks were being described in books in the late, you know, mid-late 1800s. So where did they go? What happened to them? Apparently, according to the New York Times or whatever, the mainstream, we ate them all. Huh. We ate every single pigeon. Apparently, we would stay out in the backyard with these giant elephant guns, and it was like a family ordeal. Everyone would grab, like maybe a little Billy would grab a rock sling, and you know, Pa would get the elephant gun, and they'd just go out on their patio, and they'd just you know, fire into these flocks of birds, and they would you know, grab 30 or 40 of them, make a pigeon pie. <laughs> Doesn't add up to me. You, the American consumption of chickens in the modern day, doesn't even compare to the amount of consumption of passenger pigeons that would have been required to completely eliminate them. And furthermore, wouldn't we find like tins of canned pigeon everywhere? Wouldn't every (laughs) recipe book before 1900 have 500 different ways of preparing pigeon? I mean, these aren't huge birds. You probably need 30 of them to make a pie. So Where did this go? And same thing with the buffalo. Did we really just point rifles out the side of trains and manage to almost completely eliminate the buffalo population? 
where's the evidence? Yeah. Wow. So in my opinion, I think we have evidence like this, or if you just read between the lines on some of this stuff, there's so much that just makes absolutely no sense. And is it related to the concept of a reset? The argument certainly could be made. Is it at the very least almost like a Mandela effect <laughs> thing in history? Yeah, I think so, because it doesn't, it doesn't add up. You can't do that. It wouldn't be possible. You need the military pointing their guns at the sky for hours and hours at a time to eliminate a flock of a billion birds. But a large electromagnetic pulse? That could maybe take out a billion birds. Maybe. Volcanic eruption could maybe take out a billion birds. <laughs> so how recent was this? Wow. Yes, I'm glad I asked. That is a great little thread for people to ponder as we wrap this thing up. But I really love it. The forum is amazing. I could probably mine all sorts of great interviews from people who have written some incredible long, detailed posts of things that I've never really even considered. It's a shame that you're having to police it as a moderator. I know that can be frustrating, but there are some real gems in there and a higher percentage of gems to noise in terms of other places you could be on the internet. So just, I'm really glad we could highlight this. Yeah, and just to clarify that too, we not only have or I guess what makes us really unique is that we have a lot of people from different parts of the world contributing through things like, you know, modern translators, you know, Yandex translator, Google translate, whatever has become an invaluable resource to the point where people from Russia and Japan and Eastern European countries can come together and actually collaborate on some of this research and, you know, get to know each other. And, you know, it's very interesting. It's, you know, certainly a new experience for me is seeing this kind of evolution of like a global research network and a global historic timeline that's being measured against different cultures, information. It's really fascinating time to, to be alive and to be part of, you know, trying to rebuild a historical narrative from scratch. Cause that's essentially what has to happen at this point it has to be done from scratch. And who else is going to do it? It's not going to be those dudes in the museums. No, it won't. And another great point is that it is a worldwide community, really. And the documentaries I keep referring to, they started in German and now they're in even other languages. And I guess I would ask, are there any plans for more films or anything else we should, quote unquote, promote, so to speak, before we call it in? Yeah. So tragically, the video editor of the documentary series passed away a few months ago, oh. which sending good vibes out to Bart and his family, you know, that was really a, a tough thing to go through for all of us. You know, we, we certainly felt it and our hearts go out to him and his family, but we haven't stopped. I guess I would say, you know, we're always trying to think of the next thing to do. And, and the author of, the documentary series, you know, certainly has a lot more, you know, again, the resources here are so vast, we could be making documentaries for the rest of our lives and never really scratch the surface. And it's all been done with volunteers. We're not a shady cabal of 
people posing as one person. Unfortunately, that seems to be potentially the case in a lot of situations when it comes to this kind of content. Um, huh. We base a lot of our work from people who are volunteering their time. I volunteer my time on the website. You know, the people who edited those videos and provided the narration and everyone involved with the site. It's all been because we love this stuff and we're all volunteering. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say there's an open casting call for another video editor or anything like that. But at the same time, we will continue to produce content because we know how important the visual medium is, especially with this type of research. And we know that people don't have the time anymore to sift through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of replies and threads and research. It's becoming too hard to ignore. So the more people that get involved, the more people that volunteer, the more people that join up and just kind of hang out. You know, we're talking about doing a podcast. Well, we have done a podcast in the past. We kind of want to reframe it and restructure it on more of a, like a higher side chats, if you will, potentially getting some more people to deep dive into some of the research they've done on the site. So we're working on stuff like that. We're trying to work on taking some of the best of posts and creating some content, you know, video content around that as well. So we're working on stuff, you know, obviously we have a YouTube channel. So anything that we're going to do is going to be available there, available directly on the website. And yeah, so like I said, join up. I will say the only thing we do have that's not value for value is we do have a one-time donation that gets you access to an archive version of the website. Because another important thing is not only making sure we're researching stolen history, but making sure our stolen history doesn't become stolen history again. Right, right. (laughs) So having redundant copies accessible to people who want to ensure that this stuff is being saved into the future if something ever happens is super important, especially with the library that we're also amassing right now. Again, free books to download, lots of great stuff in there. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great place to be if you want to learn and you're willing to participate or just lurk. I mean, it doesn't really matter to us, but the important thing is we're all doing this together and you showing up is enough. Hell yeah. Yeah. There, there's so much great stuff. I didn't even ask you about breeding humans or Antarctica or the giants or the psychological elements of all this and how amnesia is a really great defense mechanism for humanity, maybe on a collective scale as well. So much great stuff. It's yeah, we an amazing did get into project. ancient cloning. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. that's one of my favorite ones. We're gonna have to save ancient cloning, or people can just do a search for ancient cloning and go straight to the source. But you're running, you know, you're part of an amazing team running an amazing project in a fascinating little corner of the internet, man. And the quality is high. I hope more people find themselves checking it out. And this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time and take care. Thank you. Yes, guys, what a great interview. Alex is really well-versed in this stolen history material, and I just love this stuff more than a lot of subjects we end up covering. It's one of the few pieces of the conspiracy pie that I don't think is completely oversaturated, and I haven't heard this stuff before many places, so it feels pretty fresh. And how funny that Alex did actually call in back when we did the joint sessions live via Zoom when he mentioned trying to get Corbin Dallas on the show. It did jog my memory, and that is something I'd still like to do, but it does seem a bit lofty. But let's put it out there in the universe. Maybe he will be open to it. 
And even more synchronistic is that in the last joint session episode, somebody asked about the world's fairs. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that too, but the book hasn't really been written. But now I would say that this three-part documentary series is about as good as anyone could ask for on the subject. And before we go too far, I have to also let you guys know that just in the time since recording this with Alex, the three-part Stolen History documentary series has been removed from YouTube and the channel completely deleted. And I would hate to put the spotlight on this series and then direct everyone to the wrong place, but they do have it on Odyssey as well. The link is going to be right there in the show notes, or you can probably find it via search, but you're going to want to go to Odyssey instead of YouTube. And for people who don't really use the Odyssey video platform, it is spelled a little weird. It's O-D-Y-S-E-E. -E. So see like seen stuff. Odyssey.com. You could also follow the Higher Side Chats while you're at it. We are on there. I've got the whole archive up there, but no one really pays much attention to us in that place. And that's totally fine. But our like 500 followers looks a little pathetic. So, you know, represent. But really unfortunate timing on this removal. Apparently it's due to copyright strikes all hitting them at the same time. And then the whole channel was taken down over just a couple of videos when they really have dozens and dozens up there. And it's so ironic because I just got the THC channel back after two strikes put me in like a 90 day timeout or something like that. But waking up to a wiped channel with no previous strikes is odd, especially about this material. It's not like they're going hard on the Ukraine thing or going hard on COVID. I wouldn't immediately think that this is all that hot of a topic, but it is what it is. Alex also said they plan to recut the documentaries without the audio and the visuals that triggered the strikes. But that, of course, has been made a bit more complicated because, as he said in the interview, the guy who put them together passed away. So if you like this material and you have some video editing skills and are willing to contribute, reach out to Alex and the Stolen History team, and I'm sure they would appreciate your help. But content-wise, super interesting stuff. I even thought the Asylum material was pretty unique and not talked about all that often, even though we kind of know that it fits into the puzzle. And this case being made overall, I know it's a pretty epic claim that essentially all of history is a lie, backcasted beyond a big cataclysm that no one can really pin down, and a parasite class takeover in the wake of it, which has basically been in control ever since. But the broad picture isn't that hard to see, and the documentary does make a great case and adds so many details. And we do have these weird situations where the details of how certain cities and buildings were constructed, mainly the timelines, they can be pretty far-fetched. We talked about a few examples of that today. And then you wonder who built them, and, you know, it's like we've heard that Vikings were in the Americas. We've even heard claims that the Romans were here. So maybe these weren't Native American-built cities, and maybe that whole history needs to be rethought. Maybe the concept that we're trying to shoehorn some of this data into is just not even right. But it also kind of creates a more sinister and calculated motivation behind the Inquisition or colonial expansion, which are already sinister. But in this context, it's a lot more coordinated and intentional 
It's not like they were just going out and discovering things. They knew it was there and they knew what they were doing. And this group knows they have a narrow window of time and they were really in this full court press mode. And I know that history is a lot of material or it's thought to be a lot of material, but a lot of official history is based on a few scholars, a few different pockets of privileged people. And when you source it through, they end up no longer having the primary documents. And is that just the inconvenient reality of time and decay? Maybe. Unfortunately, we only largely have liars to trust. And maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. But even if this is half true, that is a dramatic rewrite of the human story that we've had drilled into our heads. And we know who funded Western education. So I'm into it. Lots of unanswered questions. And where are all the fucking passenger pigeons? I too want to know. And plus, people, if you have little stories or family anecdotes that add to the themes we talked about today, put them in the comments. Send me a voicemail for the joint session. Not every show is so applicable to putting out a call like this, but this is a pretty good opportunity. And really, I would say Alex crushed it, especially for not being as seasoned as a lot of people I do interview. And the second hour is just as impressive as the first. We got into painting a picture of the pre-parasite world, who built the star forts and star cities that no one really talks about, Egyptology and Napoleon, Tesla and Einstein, the Dark Ages challenge that Alex put out there, his thoughts on Anatoly Flamenco, Tartaria and Scothia. We hear about Tartaria, but we don't hear about Scothia. What's the deal? And also the old island of California. And Alex's passenger pigeon puzzle is either the last part of the plus show or the part where I cut back in for everyone. I can't remember right now. But hey, sign up for plus, support the show you love, and get twice as much of it. Start yourself out with the free seven-day trial and see how it goes. TheHiresideChats.com And higher side news, I just want to plug that event in Austin again. Come hang out with me and Gordon White. Drinks and food are available at this venue June 25th. I saw the Telegram group that we have going for the event, and people are coming from all over these here United States. It's wild to see, but it's also a pretty rare thing to have Gordon in the United States and for me to really be doing anything in meat space. So we want to make it big and fun and special. And of course, it is free, but it's only open to members of his site or mine, or we would probably get shut down from the fire marshal. We're not trying to overcrowd or as they say now, Astro World this place, you know? Well, let's also look at the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com and see where people are meeting people. All four of these are happening this weekend, actually. May 14th, a THC rune soup mashup with brews at Fieldworks in San Mateo, California. Also May 14th, Hireside Chat slash No Agenda hybrid meetup at the Grossenbacher House in Mesa, Arizona. I believe that is a private residence, so that's fun. Do be on your best behavior for the Grossenbachers, please. May 15th, we got 12 Fox Brewery in Dripping Springs, Texas. And also May 15th, we have a walking tour in New Haven, Connecticut, kicking off from the Book Trader Cafe. I like what I'm seeing. Lots of listener-created events, joint events with other like-minded podcasts. 
No agenda, of course, is appropriate because I shamelessly copied this whole idea from them. But Adam tends to support things that are open source, and I try to contribute back in donations to No Agenda appropriately. But I like a walking tour as well. I actually had this thought the other day. We used to talk about exploring certain areas or doing follow-ups to some of the things that guests have talked about. And my first attempt to try to build an infrastructure where THC listeners could get out into the field was a forum thread called the Explorers Club. And we know that the THC forums have never really popped off in full force. They're much better now, now that it's more coordinated with the membership infrastructure. But setting up something like a field investigation is difficult in a forum. You're going to be waiting a long time for somebody local to stumble across it. And then you got to go back and forth and plan the thing. But we can use the THC meetup calendar for that sort of stuff, too. You could say, hey, I live near St. Louis and I want to get a group to just go check out Cahokia Mounds. Let's meet at this coffee shop, do the intros, and then go walk around the mounds. Or there's an old Josh Reeves episode where he talked a lot about a very strange rock wall in Rockwall, Texas. People could go check that out. There's also the Chad Stemke episode that happened not too long ago where he talked about esoteric architecture and Stargate Detroit and the Great Lakes Triangle. So he looked at weird statues and structures that are put up in many of our cities, and he focused largely on Detroit. It'd be cool to get together and go check out that stuff. Or maybe have a group go check out the Susquehanna River Valley or some of Ross Ben's work in Philadelphia. We can do a lot more than just meet at breweries, although I do love a good brewery. I just also found out that San Diego has an Anthroposophy bookstore. That could be cool, too. So go forth and fill the calendar, all free events, all fun ways to meet like-minded people in your area. If you do get a group to go to any of these cool places, shoot me a voicemail again or an email and we'll add it to a joint session show. That's the kind of content they are built for. And I don't think I've said this on the air yet. I tweeted about it and Instagrammed about it, but we do have a new design in the Higher Side store. Maybe two actually and two more in the works, but... I have a redacted design, which is just really like a redacted document, and the only words that you can see are the name of the show. I like that. It's simple, but it's cool. Goes well with the white on black t-shirt theme that is basically my whole wardrobe. And then we have one that I really like, which is titled Media K Ultra. It is a media mind control design, a TV with the hypnotist spiral, and then tentacles popping out of it shooting all over the place. One of my favorites so far, honestly. It's got a bit of a tropical vibe to me, and I actually get a ton of compliments on it just walking around town. So check out thehiresideclothing.com if you want any sort of THC merch. It's really just a weird side project where I put together a lot of stuff for myself to wear and have around the house, but it's there for you too. And that's really it. I hope to see a lot of you Plus members in Austin. It's going to be one hell of a get-together. And big thanks to Alex for all of his work and the whole Stolen History team. Definitely check out the three-part series if you want to go deeper or join their forum at StolenHistory.net and comb over all the really great high-quality posts. It's a fun rabbit hole to get into. But I love you guys. I'm really proud of what we have going on here, and I can't believe that I can raise a family with this as my job in this climate. 
the support and the reciprocal system we have is just a dream come true. For those who haven't jumped in yet, just use that seven-day trial and go download some of the full two-hour shows of the past episodes you liked most, and I'm confident you will find that it's worth your while. But I am getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, history stealers, royal society secret keepers, and academic architects of the big lie. Your fucking move. Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited Buy a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. 
And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves. And I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.